0: Welcome to the Economics Explained podcast. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. Last month, the government of the state of Queensland in Australia announced that it would possibly invest up to $200 million in the airline Virgin Australia, which is currently struggling. Some 20 years ago, the government of Queensland gave Virgin Australia a special investment attraction package. It gave it financial incentives to invest in Queensland in the first place, and now it's looking at other measures that it can adopt to keep Virgin viable and to keep its headquarters in Queensland. This raises an important question about whether... Such investment attraction or such industry policy measures are desirable. And to talk about investment attraction and industry policy more broadly, I've invited Craig Lawrence, Managing Director of Lytton Advisory, back onto the program. Craig, good to uh, have you here again.
1: Thanks for having me on again, Gene.
0: It's a pleasure, Craig. Would you be able to Give us a an understanding of what industry policy is based on your experience and and uh, and also your your general uh, experience as an economist, please.
1: Thanks, Gene. I, I think um, you know when we think of industry policy, we're often thinking of a very interventionist approach that uh, governments take. And in the past, uh, governments were very keen to. Uh, protect industries. So a lot of the policy prescriptions were uh, around providing tariff walls and barriers that uh, prevented um, uh, imports from other countries getting in to protect local industry. And also governments in the past were very much more confident that they had insight or information that the market didn't have that would enable them to pick sectors of the economy that would perform better and even in some cases pick individual firms and and subsidize individual firms to to get involved Um, the other thing too is that at some points in our economic history uh, there were just sectors of the economy that hadn't been developed at all and the private sector didn't have the capital base to make the investments that were needed so a lot of our infrastructure in Australia, for example, our telecommun our telecommunications system and our ports, uh, were funded through um, uh, public uh, public effort as well. So uh, there's a long history there of of involvement. But what we've seen increasingly is that. As uh, industries mature and as markets develop and as information about those markets becomes um, embedded in them, uh, that uh, private investment is able to uh, identify where or how best to allocate uh, capital, uh, particularly where there may not be significant large externalities. Uh, So the costs of doing something are actually reflected in you know the, the the industrial activity itself, and uh, so a lot of industry policy then shifted over time to uh, looking at uh, establishing a competitive environment for businesses to operate in, uh, and also at ways in which to improve the productivity of different industry sectors as well. And, and I guess that's sort of a, a backdrop to. Um, some of the work that uh, that uh, I was doing when I was in government. Uh, the other thing that was important too was the intrat- attraction of uh, investment into an economy as well. And uh, one of the areas that I worked in in the government system was actually looking at whether the government should put an investment uh, into a particular firm in order to attract it and to draw resources from another part of the wider Australian economy or overseas uh, into uh, into Queensland. And, uh, you know, we find that that, uh, that approach was done with Virgin some 20 years ago. And, you know, as you mentioned in your opening remarks, it looks like we're a bit back to the future but on a larger scale. Right.
0: So Virgin, that's an example of where the government Wanted to develop an aerospace industry or an aviation industry. Is that correct? The government decided that it wanted to develop this sector, that uh, we didn't, you know, there were potential jobs in that sector, high paying jobs, and so therefore it wanted to encourage the development of that sector. And likewise, they had uh, measures to encourage the development of a film industry and also biotech. But historically what we've seen is that the governments have tended to want to encourage manufacturing. So after the war in Australia here, we had governments establish high or put on high tariffs on uh, motor vehicles and and motor vehicle parts to encourage a domestic industry there's something governments see something special in manufacturing is that correct what is it about manufacturing or or other sectors that they that they want to attract what is it that makes them desirable to the government why
1: do they want to encourage those particular sectors it's a good question and uh, a lot of manufacturing activity is actually about marshaling or pulling together a lot of natural resources and uh, transforming those natural resources into a finished uh, product. And so um, probably out of, I would argue that out of a lot of industry sectors uh, that you would look at, the manufacturing sector probably has um, very significant supply chains and we can see that with the experience of the automotive industry in australia and the wind-up of um australian manufactured cars the extent to which that's affected component makers here in australia and um so you've got forward and backward linkages that are very strong out of uh, manufacturing plants um and also the other thing is that um that industry requires significant capital investment. And so the um, manufacturers face uh, some very heavy decisions uh, about making those investments. Um, And a government assistance, there's an infant industries argument that, you know, after the second world war, we wanted to see more manufacturing in Australia. We wanted to open up different manufacturing sectors so the argument went, well, if we protect those sectors, we can eventually grow them. And of course, the provision of the assistance should have been on the basis that when they grow up and they're no longer infant, you stop providing it. But what we effectively created was a rent-seeking economy where industry continually found more and more reasons why they wanted to go to government and ask for continuing assistance. And in the in the case of the car industry, they literally did that for decades. Um, Uh, to be able to do that. I mean, having said that, there were jobs created, there was economic activity that was occurring, Um, but the difficult thing to assess is the cost of that assistance, not only in terms of cost out of the budget and out of taxpayers' pockets, but also because these industries were protected from global competition, consumers actually didn't get the cheapest cars for the same level of quality that they could have got if those tariff falls hadn't have been up. And so uh, there was a big massive loss of uh, consumer surplus at the same time. And I haven't seen too many studies that toted that up, but uh, you could you could guess even if you just looked at the level of assistance, that the thousands of dollars that were put on the prices of cars in Australia because we weren't making them at a globally competitive level. Uh, That's a big loss of consumer surplus over a long period of time.
0: That's right. And I think the Productivity Commission has estimated what you're talking about there, Craig, that welfare loss to consumers. Uh, I'll try to put some of the links in the show notes so vaguely remember in some of their previous reviews of car industry assistance, that they they just showed what a huge cost it it was those tariffs were to consumers and also to industry industry in Australia that was using motor vehicles, mm-hmm. and like we made a decision here in the late '80s, I think, to start bringing down that tariff wall because it was just costing consumers and industry too much and. In real terms, cars are much cheaper and and much higher quality nowadays. I think so. I think there have been some clear welfare gains from bringing those tariffs down. W- would you agree that bringing those tariffs down was a that was good policy?
1: I think so. I think consumers have benefited enormously. The other thing too is we look at. Um, Uh, what we've been able to do with our economy and the fact that we have nearly always been a trading nation as well. And in order to achieve those really full gains from trade, you have to be consistent on both sides of the ledger uh, in terms of your approach to tariffs. And so um, in as much as we're pushing for open markets for agriculture, it means that you know, from a policy perspective and a negotiating perspective at the international trade tables, we also have to accept that we have to open up uh, the other parts of the economy. And we can see just how powerful that is. In the current situation with China, um, the Chinese are arguing that we're actually dumping barley uh, at below cost uh, on the in the Chinese market. And uh, I would think that... Um, Uh, Our barley growers are just simply very, very efficient compared to their Chinese counterparts uh, because I'm pretty sure they're not getting big, massive subsidies to sell barley into China. Uh, And uh, from time to time, you know, we've seen uh, other countries export to us and, you know, we've got an anti-dumping authority that takes, uh, takes a look at issues, but it's not often that, you know, we find that, these other countries are willfully dumping product in the Australian market at below the cost of production. It's just that in those particular markets, our manufacturers are just very, very inefficient, you know, because of the way that they're organised or they're not able to get the kind of scale that uh, offshore um, uh, manufacturers can achieve.
0: Okay. Another uh, point I'd like to talk about you talked before about how what we're effectively doing is we're moving resources from one sector to another so if you put a tariff on that protects manufacturing you're expanding your manufacturing sector and that will have you'll have to you'll have to employ people in that sector and you'll have to take them from from other industries or you will have to build up a capital stock in that sector that couldn't be built up in another sector so you're picking you're picking a winning sector so there's this term that's used often the picking winners and you can either pick a winning industry what you think should be the winner or you can actually then go ahead and pick winning Firms, can't you? So, could we look at policies to to pick particular firms? Like, in what ways do governments assist individual businesses beyond a tariff? So, we'll, we've dealt with tariffs, but what are some other policy measures that they'll use to assist businesses? And I suppose we should distinguish between what might be generally available measures such as tax concessions and measures that might be specific to particular businesses. Would you be able to take us through that, please, Craig? Uh,
1: some, sometimes and uh, uh, governments look to attract businesses into their geography and uh, so what they're really looking at is, you know, from a national economy perspective, the you know the difference of a factory being located in New South Wales or Queensland is, uh, you know, probably just down to differences in taxes and differences in some labour costs and maybe even some capital and operating costs. But um, you know, from a national economic perspective, the output of the factory is not going to change, and the value of the product uh, is not going to be um, markedly uh, different. But um, state jurisdictions will want to um, spend some money to attract a factory in order to build their own industrial base, uh, manufacturing base. And so that investment attraction uh, is um, often needs to be tested. And uh, one of the ways it gets tested is uh, through you know, look at a cost-benefit analysis from the perspective of the state, not the national economy, as to what resources the state might commit to attract a business and uh, what that state would reasonably bring. And one of the things to be very careful about there is um, how you actually count what the benefit is. Because if a business comes in and all it does is it takes employees from another part of the state economy, the employment benefit is not as strong or may not be realized. And uh, similarly, if the business is taking uh, other resources uh, from the state economy that would have otherwise been used by other businesses in the economy, you know, the gain could be quite marginal for a big uh, outlay by the state. And this is always the concern when you're looking at um, big investments uh, by the state, even the consideration of something like Virgin. Um, yeah. so,
0: Craig, could I just ask, what would those outlays be on? What types of assistance
1: are we talking about? So sometimes it can be um, a, uh, a capital uh, subsidy. So a, a business needs to set up, it needs to build a factory, the government might provide um, financial assistance towards the capital cost of the factory. Uh, the government might uh, pick up uh, part of the uh, capital cost of the infrastructure in the industrial estate or give a concession on the you know, on the infrastructure charges uh, or it may give a payroll tax holiday for a period of time you know, on the uh, employment, that sort of thing. Um, but so some of the assistance can take the form of financial assistance uh, and uh, other types of assistance can be in in the form of in-kind where a business may, for example, have trouble locating in other jurisdictions because of environmental regulation or um, lack of availability of a suitable industrial land and the state may be well positioned to package all of that up and offer that in an expedited way. And for some businesses, the timing of their investment's critical to be able to get product to market or to seize an opportunity. And so states that can move relatively fast can offer something that's attractive to to business. The flip side of that is that sometimes state governments are really not in a position to do the full economic, financial and environmental assessments needed for what they're actually approving. Um, so, um, you know, you'll find that there's um, assistance around attracting the investment. Um, and the other thing is that um, when we're talking about it, um, support for individual businesses, uh, you see a lot of state governments supporting um, uh, investment in startups. Uh, so, and they do that in a variety of ways, funding business incubators and things like that. And um, often they've got criteria for the kinds of businesses that they're interested in looking at. So, it's not a blanket thing like a a general tax rebate or, you know, a general payroll tax holiday that's available to all firms. They're often uh, targeting particular niches or particular types of um, uh, businesses. So, you know, we've seen industry policy that's focused on the creative industries, for example, Um, and we've seen um, uh, public funding uh, go for film and television production in uh, Queensland. Not only the infrastructure, the support for the studios, but for actual productions as well. yeah, so That's the state
0: government – sorry, Craig, I just remembered that the state government here in Queensland built a new soundstage or paid for the construction of a new soundstage for Village Roadshow Studios at a cost of some $15 million or something. Yeah. There. And they argued that it, was, it would be used, well, at least once during the Commonwealth Games that we had on the Gold Coast uh, – <laughs> but, yes, uh, yeah, you're right. This this type of assistance can take, uh, yeah, a variety of uh,
1: forms.
0: And yeah, and please continue. The, I just I just yeah, remember yeah, that's one of my favourite topics, uh, the film industry.
1: Sometimes you'll find too that um, uh, a government will take a look and they'll identify an industry sector that uh, is just really not part of the economy or not really... Uh, a focus for private investors in uh, Queensland and then they'll put massive investment into it and uh, this happened in the 2000s with the biotechnology sector here in, in Queensland and um, and it's not just private and public money sometimes you get lucky and you get uh, philanthropy happening and so and um, so uh, you find that there's a look at what um, pure science is doing. And then the issue is what, what's, what are the commercialization opportunities from a pure science? They're still not ready to go prime time into a private market, but there is a, a case for government funding for research and development that puts it on the commercialization track. Um, and the real skill from a government perspective is knowing when to be able to step off and allow private sector so uh, business expenditure on research and development needs to then kick in and uh, pull it through to uh, you know uh, to full commercialisation and um, a governments are that's that area of overlap between the role of government and uh, the role of the uh, private sector. And that translation from, uh, say, pure academic research into uh, commercial commercialised product and making sure that there's a return to the state from its investment, you know, that that has to be a genuine economic return. But there's a point at which, you know, it becomes uh, intellectual property that can be uh, commercialised by uh, the private sector and that ge- generates revenue, generates jobs. Yeah. Um, Craig?
0: Just on this point about R and D and then commercialisation. So when I was in the Treasury, what we would always argue, and I know as an economist you argue this too, that we only want to intervene where there's a recognised market failure, and with with innovation, you can argue that there there are spillover benefits from innovation that could justify assistance. Mm. But the way the Treasury and also the Productivity Commission in Australia, the way that they would prefer that assistance is provided is as a generally available measure, such as, a well, an R&D tax offset. And you're not picking specific businesses or specific industries. It's available to businesses that have R&D. What, so they were able to prove that they're, they're doing some R&D. With commercialization, isn't the problem that you end up having to pick winners, don't you? You have to pick particular businesses and there are a lot of problems with trying to pick winners to try to pick particular businesses. Would you be able to tell us your thoughts on what are the pros and cons of, uh, of picking winners, of trying to provide this assistance to specific businesses? Would you be able to tell us the pros and cons and, and are there any general lessons?
1: My, my opinion on this is, and it's only an opinion, but um, I just don't think that government has the information to be able to pick winners and, uh, you know, one thing that I was looking at a couple of years ago was uh, if there's a company that has to know how to pick winners, for example, it's a pharmaceutical company. So, big drug companies like Merck uh, will um, have research teams combing through chemical compounds. And they may look at 10,000 different chemical compounds a year. And one of the skills of these large pharmaceutical companies is to know when to turn the research dollar tap off on their teams. And that's quite a brutal internal process. Uh, So in a sense, they're prospecting like a resource company. Uh, The resource is the the next chemical compound that can turn into a good drug. And uh, to go all the way through the clinical trials process is millions and millions of dollars and years and years and years. And so uh, for these large companies, what they want to do is they want to draw the line uh, as soon as they can, but they also want to be sure that they actually take drugs through to becoming blockbusters and, and winners because when they do get a payoff, um, it's a multi-billion dollar payoff that is a return for their shareholders. And it's often, it's often struck me that that kind of analysis of the data and um, that uh, focus, government finds it really hard to achieve. And it's, it's primarily an institutional thing because um, the goals that they have are different to uh, the private sector. You know, the private sector's primary goal is to maximize the return for its shareholders subject to the operating environment that it's given by you know, societal expectations and the law and regulation and so on. But the government objectives are a little bit less well-defined. You know, that's sort of, we want to stimulate investment. We want some jobs. Um, and the way that they're articulated, um, those objectives are not quite crisp enough to be able to make Uh, hard, immediate uh, decisions. And um, the other thing is that the responsibility for a fail uh, rests with the entity uh, less than with the government that might have provided it with a bit of uh, seed funding. And so, you know, we don't remember all of the poor decisions and investments that uh, governments have made over time. Uh, and so there's no pressure on the government model for how it uh, organises itself to do these things better. So the way in which we selected the Ord River project, for example, uh, probably hasn't changed. Um, and, uh, and similarly with other projects where, you know, we're just not getting the returns uh, that um, uh, that we thought we were going to get.
0: Yeah. And there are a couple of examples that really illustrate that point in our state, in Queensland and Australia. Well, one, Virgin, I wonder 20 years ago when they were making that decision whether they would have made a different decision if they would have known in 20 years' time that they'd possibly have to consider investing $200 million into the airline to keep it within, within Queensland. Uh, maybe, they, you know, maybe they still would have gone ahead. They're, they only have a, a short time horizon. Uh, and there's also that example of Berry. Have you are you aware of that example, Craig? No. The uh, the fruit juice company. So this was in that uh, the Queensland Competition Authority did a report on industry assistance about five years ago, and there's a great example they give in there about how we provided financial incentives for Berry to relocate some of its production to Queensland i think from new south wales or south australia and i think it was it only stayed here for maybe a bit over 10 years before it took all of its production to new south wales because it it just wasn't economic to produce here so there's is there a risk that we can provide all of these incentives so we can, have, we, can give them a pa- we can waive payroll tax so they don't have to pay payroll tax or they have to pay very little of it. We could even provide an explicit payment, a subsidy up, up front. We can provide cheaper infrastructure, as you mentioned. Is there a risk that once the incentives run out, they'll just work out, well, it wasn't economic locating being in that jurisdiction without the incentives, so we'll just go somewhere else? Is that a risk?
1: It, I think it is a real risk and um, it's why uh, uh, exemptions and tax concessions are uh, probably a bit more attractive for government because you're only giving up something out of what you would have gotten from the, uh, the business. So you know, payroll tax exemption is, well, we can't give you anything other than uh, something off what you would have paid us. And the same with a, a company tax uh, break as well is that you know they it, in in general uh, you know getting a little bit of a tax holiday you know it's a cost to the revenue of the uh, the government um, but it's not an extra extra fee or charge you know that's much different to say uh, a grant fund you know that's come out of consolidated revenue and has been drawn from revenues have been collected from elsewhere in the economy. Um, So there's always a risk of that and it means that the design of the industry incentive has to be very carefully thought about because it has to provide the right incentives uh, for uh, businesses to, um, to stay around for a period of time. Yes, exactly. I think looking at the Virgin case, um, it's it's very hard, you know, if you wind the clock back 20 years, um, it's it's very hard to sort of know what Virgin was going to be at that time Um, and, uh, you know, to say then, oh, in 2020 it's going to be this. Um, So uh, the investment is really uh, made on, yeah, a much a shorter, uh, realistically it's made on a much, should be made with a much shorter time horizon, you know, in, in place.
0: Exactly. Craig, just on not knowing 20 years ago what would happen in 2020, so the big event in 2020 quite obviously is uh, COVID-19. With COVID-19 and the economic dislocation it's caused should we relax some of our our principles should, as economists as economists should we be more open to interventions to well to bail out or to retain industries or to attract industries or businesses into the country or into the state? should we change our principles? Given this special event, this COVID nineteen,
1: I I think when you talk about changing principles, we're thinking about the the question is: Has uh, COVID nineteen created a situation that breaks the current economic uh, paradigm? Uh, And I I tend to be, you know, a bit of a simple bloke. I I look at um, you know what what is COVID nineteen really? And there's a, a, I have to just acknowledge the, the massive human toll that the virus has created globally. And I need, need to say that first. Um, but in, t- in economic terms, what we're talking about is um, employee uh, displacement in, uh, in the economic system. And that employee displacement in the economic system comes through the lack of availability of key people in firms to carry out their tasks and also the lack of availability of people because they're ill um, or uh, they're no longer uh, in the workforce and then the other thing is the public health response requiring people to um, shelter at home stay at home and the social distancing rules that are driving uh, a different type of behavior whilst we wait for a vaccine. So when I look at those two things, very simplistically, I'm looking at a shift in the supply curve for uh, uh, markets, you know, for different goods and services and the economy responding to that. And then, then I look at the principal question and I go, do I think that the model that I've got in my mind about how an economy works is fundamentally changing? And I don't think it is. I think what we're seeing is we're seeing a supply-side shock to industry sectors, an extreme supply-side shock. Um, And so for me, I don't think I'd want to modify the principles or anything. In fact, it becomes a bit more critical that you want uh, sharper economic analysis because you have to be able to look at how resources might be reallocated as a result of that supply side shock. And we know that we've gone into a very steep downside of the V and we're probably coming out with a flat side of the other arm of that, that V in terms of uh, economic activity. But does it actually it might change some consumer preferences for things, um, but doesn't fundamentally change the structure of our society uh, that then that affects uh, the permanent way in which we run the, the, these economies. I, I don't think so, and so for that reason, I just think that now more than ever, good economic analysis is needed to help understand uh, how to drive out of such a, a steep downturn. And, um, and also to take lessons from the past when we've had massive unemployment before. You know, what were the things that we did to assist with the uh, recovery? I, I don't think we need to create new industries um, to remobilise people because I think the industries are all sitting there, the, the offices and the factories and uh, the, you know, the commercial uh, spaces are all there waiting for people. Um, so it's really more a human factor thing. How do we re-engage? How do we redesign uh, our operations to keep our economy going? Um, it does provide an opportunity to look at the way in which we uh, consume goods and services. And I think a lot of people will reflect on that and you know maybe they might reorder their priorities and preferences. But that's no different to the introduction of, say, a smartphone or uh, digital streaming and people's behaviour changing as a result of, say, you know, new technology or um, people being more reliant on um, uh, you know, the, the internet uh, for entertainment and to be able to transact business. Those things have evolved over time and we've had a short, sharp shock here that we have to recover from. But I don't think that means we have to give up, uh, you know, the the economic frame with the lens with which, you know, which has served us well so far.
0: Yeah, I agree, Craig. I just thought I'd bring that up because, uh, I mean, Virgin, one of the reasons Virgin is is in administration at the moment is because the corona crisis, it's been the straw that's broken the camel's back. But it was an airline that was in trouble prior to coronavirus, I think, and we need to recognise that when we're thinking about whether it's uh, something that government should be investing in. And as a a principle, I'd rather – well, I would rather the government not be investing in businesses if it can provide some sort of temporary – Financing, perhaps, maybe you could justify that sort of thing, but not a not an investment, an equity investment in a company. I can't really see the logic in that. Can I ask about regions? What if you're in a high unemployment region? Could it be in the interests of a, a local council to provide a subsidy to say? a meat works, an abattoir to open up, which might employ locals? Could that be a good use of public funds? How would you go about assessing that?
1: When you look at um, regional employment issues, I always want to see where the, the labour market or the capital market is not performing. You know, So I've got to look and say, okay, I've got high unemployment in this region, um, is there something uh, there where there's not sufficient information for employers, or is uh, are the um, investors and financiers who have money uh, to spend uh, not seeing you know what the uh, commercial potential is, uh, or not willing to take? Uh, a risk there in, in a, you know, a relatively small market compared to you know, one attached to, say, a major metropolitan centre. And um, you know, if, I, if I can form a view that there's a potential market failure, then prima facie, I've got uh, grounds to say, well, maybe government could do something about it. But then I still have to go through that classic thought process of saying, well, what's my government intervention going to look like And is that actually going to do more harm, you know, in the economy than not doing anything at all? So the first thing is to simply say, look, if the private sector can't allocate capital in a way that gets, uh, addresses, you know, a social issue for me, then do I need to um, make an investment? And if I make an investment from the public purse, I've got to be very clear about whether I'm doing this on a commercial basis or I'm doing it to address a social policy issue that I'm seeing. And when I do make that investment, if I decide to, you know, from a local government perspective, I've got to say, well, is that going to be a sustainable thing? Because there's no point in sinking, you know, uh, capital uh, into a project. And then in the short term, it just fails uh, fails to deliver. Um, yeah, so I think in some cases, you know, to pursue the policy of um, trying to alleviate uh, regional unemployment, investment in the in the region uh, is attractive. But the other thing you want to see about that is the extent to which that investment stays and circulates within the region and flows into the other businesses and strengthens uh, the regional economy and. To do that, uh, I think one would really have to have a good understanding of uh, how resources flow in and out of that regional economy, both physical and, and financial. I mean, if, if all the money goes in, and then the next day it gets spent on things outside the region, uh, there's hardly any touchdown there. And so you can spend a lot of money and you just don't get the policy outcome that you want. Um, and that's why sometimes um, public spending on hospitals and education in regions is a good thing because you get the service delivery that you need to meet in terms of a social policy objective but those extra pay packets go into uh, regional economy and support indirectly you know local business local businesses and and more economic activity as well
0: yeah and in terms of uh, bang for buck in terms of how much it costs to uh, support one job in the region it might be end up being cheaper to to put the money into health or education is that would that be fair to say
1: i think so And the thing about that is that um you uh you're getting other benefits you're getting other economic benefits in doing spending it on health and education uh, because you're you're basically uh, lifting uh, you're improving the uh, living standards of people in the in those communities, um, and you're improving their prospects for employment, things like that, through investing in health and education. So you're meeting this wider social policy objectives that have downstream economic benefits for the for the economy um so you, you sort of it's a much deeper uh, much more impactful uh return uh because of because of that uh rather than just simply cutting a like say an employment uh subsidy payment uh which is just a transfer into employers pockets if they hire so many people you know you give them a jobs bounty or something like that, Um, you know, people are, they're not getting the education or the uh, health benefits as well. Uh, Yeah.
0: And it can be very expensive to to subsidise jobs. So, I mean, some estimates I've seen, I remember the PC produced an estimate back at the time they were looking at the car industry in the 2000s and, I think there was one study they estimated it could cost three hundred thousand dollars per job saved. So you can get some very high estimates of the cost of uh, protecting or or attracting jobs via uh, via industry policy
1: measures. And I think this is something that you know I was just looking at recently in terms of industry policy, um, uh, Gene. Uh, Unido actually looks at industry policy in terms of three stages of economic development. You know, there's the kinds of policies you put in place for developing countries, the kinds of policies you put in place for uh, economies that have industrialised, you know, and they're well into industrialization, but they're still labour intensive in their manufacturing processes. And then in the... In the sort of third phase of industrialization, the kinds of policies you're looking at there, really get back, Take government takes a step back from actually putting the direct cash in. And the kinds of things you see there are joint public-private investment in research and development. This is where governments are looking to leverage the private sector uh, and creating an environment for private sector interest in something And similarly, uh, governments will look to not provide the funding, but create the climate to stimulate venture capital funds for investment in high technology, that sort of thing. The other thing too, is that you'll find that, um, and we see this uh, at both the federal and at state levels, is the funding for higher education is increasingly oriented towards STEM, so applied science. Uh, because that helps generate the kinds of, um, the kind of research and information that you need to do advanced manufacturing and high technology. Um, and the final two bits of it really are in, um, when you look at the industrial structure that we've got. Um, over time, we've gone through a number of major structural adjustments in the Australian economy and in the 80s, we realised that we weren't super competitive in the steel industry and so we had a federal government program to reallocate the resources in the economy through uh, the windup of the, the steel industry. And uh, I don't know, at the moment, the jury's still out on how well that's being done with the car industry. So you're really looking at ways in which you can facilitate enterprise restructuring. And also the other thing too is that as people are leaving uh, one industry sector, uh, are trying to map their skills into other industry sectors, and I know in particular in the car industry in South Australia, they've done a lot of work with uh, the Holden staff, for example, on trying to get them into other employment. And I I think they've been reasonably successful. I can't remember the exact number, but over 80% of the workforce has been redeployed into uh, other jobs. And, I mean, that's got to be a success. You know, when you close down a big car operation like that with thousands of people, and it's taken some time, uh, but uh, to be able to retrain people and to... Convert their skills into you know something that's useful in other sectors. Um, you know that's not a diff- not an easy thing to do, and it's not something that any industry sector uh, uh, would naturally pick up uh, and and work on. Um, so it's a, a classic role for uh, government in terms of you know redeploying skills in the economy. Yeah, but those um, those five are really about. How you work at the frontier of um, the current industrial structure and the emerging uh, the emerging economy, and you know we're we're never static. We're always dynamic. We're always inventing uh, new approaches, and um, and in a globally competitive market, our ability to be able to affect those changes like that in the industry space is becoming increasingly important. Absolutely.
0: Craig, I know we have to wrap up soon, but there's just one more issue I'd like to chat about quickly if you've got time. Sure. Okay. What we see with a lot of these uh, sweetheart deals, these special deals for companies or film productions to locate in a jurisdiction we see that the agreements that the governments make with the companies are stamped commercial in confidence, which means outsiders, analysts, economists can't do that independent assessment of whether it's a good, I- good idea or not. It's done within government. Do you have any thoughts on whether this is, this is something we should be worried about, that there, the nature of these agreements mean the, the fact that we have these agreements being commercial in confidence, it means that we can't have that external scrutiny?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think there's plenty of ways to get external scrutiny in uh, without needing to publish it on the front page of a newspaper. And so a lot of people think that... Um, you know, because it's not in the public domain, uh, it can't be examined. Um, but of course it can. Um, and just to take a completely different angle on this, we know, for example, with national security issues, that there is independent oversight of our national security agencies by a parliamentary standing committee. So, you um, You know, those agencies just can't do whatever they they like. There's an accountability there. So when the government of the day uh, doesn't present uh, its uh, financial resolution for an incentive before an estimates committee, uh, there's nothing, there's no reason why all the information relating to the decision can't be given to, say, the Auditor-General for review as an independent, you know, office holder of Parliament, uh, to basically look at it, and and I think that uh, governments would be thinking a lot more carefully about some of the commercial decisions they entered into if they knew that there was a genuine independent review. Uh, that review doesn't, you know, the full detail doesn't have to be published, um, but. Uh, if the public knows that the institution that's doing the review is genuinely at arm's length uh, from the government of the day and has independent statutory authority, uh, they'd have a lot more confidence about uh, commercial incompetence. The other thing is that um, it's not clear, often not clear when commercial incompetence is claimed that the what the matter is surrounding the confidentiality Um, you know these companies actually publish if they're listed companies you know they do have to publish their revenues you know for the stock exchange uh reporting and other compliance issues and so um uh i i can understand that it might be embarrassing for a government if it's handing a big subsidy to an individual company that it doesn't want to disclose it but these are public funds. They're meant to be generating a benefit, you know, for the for the wider public, not just simply falling onto the bottom line for for shareholders. Um, and I think the public's entitled to know what benefits they're getting uh, in return uh, for you know the use of their their funds. Uh, so I'd always try and push for for transparency. Um, and uh, I think that, um, you know, there's a number of ways to do that. I mean, one one way is, you know, so I suggested have an independent body do the review at the time or just immediately after the decision's made. The other thing is not to wait for the cabinet period for disclosure of information, but to have like a three-year period or something when the commercial imperative for confidentiality is waned. And... Uh, open the, the books on it, and we can see the difficulty that um, uh, that this can have. Because you know, for example, um, you know, if I was to pick on say West Connects in uh, Sydney, um, you know, they made the initial investment decision in 2013. The New South Wales Audit Office did a review of that in 2014, but subsequent to that, they made a few changes to the investment and the project and they pulled um, uh, some parts of the project out and did them as separate projects. And so, you know, you want to have a, an independent review of the decision-making processes around that uh, so the public has confidence about the decisions that are being made, you know, on the, on their behalf.
0: Right. That's a toll road, is it, you're talking about in Sydney, yeah. in Australia? And
1: so, yeah. So when you look at it, you know, the big, the big secret is, well, what were the traffic forecasts? At the time uh, because the traffic forecasts drive the revenues Um, and uh, so you know there's a lot of sensitivity around uh, the you know the forecasting and um, I just think that there are some things that after a period of time the need for them to remain confidential is not really there and they should be brought out into the public domain as soon as possible
0: absolutely Craig industry policy is a huge topic we've covered a lot of ground today.
1: Yeah, Are there any true. points,
0: other points you'd like to make before we wrap up?
1: i just, time and again, I just, and it's something I always beat the drum on, is that good economic appraisal makes an enormous difference right up front. Um, and that clarity of thinking uh, and just having that one Jeremiah there to say, is that really what we're expecting to get? Uh, by making this particular public investment and I know in my own experience time and again uh, I've asked a difficult question and uh, the outcome hasn't been an abandonment of the investment but it's been an improvement in the way in which the government's handled it that's actually saved you know uh, millions of dollars for people uh, for taxpayers and uh, i I know that in, in one circumstance, it was just asking a question about whether a company had was committing its own equity to the project, and uh, it turned out that they weren't. It was all debt financed. And uh, because they put you know a couple of million dollars in, that was a couple of million dollars that the state didn't need to put in. And if we hadn't have asked the question, uh, we wouldn't have saved the uh, taxpayers that couple of million dollars. And I just feel that um, someone that's uh, dispassionate about the project can ask the you know ask a reasonable set of questions just to test it.
0: Absolutely. Okay. Craig Lawrence, Managing Director of Lytton Advisory. That's been great. Uh, we've had a really comprehensive conversation about industry policy. I've really enjoyed that. And uh, yes, thanks again.
1: Thanks so much, Gene. It's been a pleasure to be on the
0: show. We've reached the end of another Economics Explained episode. So thanks for listening all the way through. If you're enjoying Economics Explained, please tell your family and friends and rate the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or on whatever platform you are listening on. Finally, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please get in touch. My email address is gene.tunny at gmail.com. Until next week, goodbye.